0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where this week two editors and a special guest are going to take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by editorial associate Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. And all the way from Kentucky, Brian L. Fry, associate professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Hi. Hey, Brian. All right. So two weeks ago, A new row broke out in the art world, one that is actually part of a very, very long fight over what's called deaccessioning. The Berkshire Museum in Massachusetts decided to sell 40 works of art, including pieces by Norman Rockwell and Alexander Calder to pay for renovation and boost its endowment. This sale, which was not to acquire more work, violated industry guidelines around the sale of art from a museum's collection, which is what is known as deaccessioning. So before we get into this specific instance, Brian, I was wondering if you could uh, walk us through the current guidelines around deaccessioning.
1: Sure. Yeah. So deaccessioning is the counterpart of of acquisition. So acquisition is when museums add works to their collections. Deaccessioning is when museums remove works from their collections. And the professional organizations that govern museums have developed what they refer to as as ethical guidelines governing when museums can and can't remove works from their collections. And specifically, the ethical guidelines for museums state that they can't deaccession or sell works from their collections in order to monetize those works and pay for general operating expenses.
2: But there are certain times where museums are allowed to sell works from their collection, correct?
1: That's right. So there's two different professional bodies that govern museum operations. The first is the American Alliance of Museums, which includes museums of all different characters. So art museums, natural history museums, you name it. Uh, There's also the Association of Art Museum Directors, which, as its name suggests, is a professional body that only consists of art museum directors. So the American Alliance of Museums Deaccessioning Guidelines say that museums can deaccession for two reasons, right? One is in order to add new items to the collection, in other words, deaccessioning in order to enable acquisition, or to provide for, quote-unquote, direct care of their collections. By contrast, the Association of Art Museum Directors' uh, deaccessioning guidelines provide that museums can only deaccession in order to acquire new works. The guidelines are slightly different depending on which professional organization you're looking at.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because if you're looking at the history of rules around deaccessioning, The guidelines actually had to be revised because of the broad constituency of the AAM.
1: That's right. It was actually pretty controversial, I think. So this guideline was initially adopted by the AAM in, I believe it was 1991. And there was a lot of conversation or dissension among its membership over whether deaccessioning for the purpose of direct care was appropriate and also what the definition of direct care actually was. And so over the course of a couple of decades, the AAM actually kind of hashed out what that would mean, and uh, came up with kind of some internal rubrics over, you know, what counted as direct care and, and what didn't. Do we have examples of what those were? Sure. I mean, in their guidelines, they provide a matrix that museums can look at To determine whether or not a particular use is direct care or not, they sort of distinguish between, you know, whether it's impacting particular objects or is a quick fix or has an institution-wide impact, so on and so forth. I think the cynical kind of breakdown is just that because the membership of the AAM is so broad— There was kind of a recognition that like natural history museums, for example, might deaccession things for reasons that are totally different from art museums. Uh, and I would say also that art museums are unique in the sense that the works that they hold in their collections often have extremely or relatively high value, whereas many other museums hold works in their collections that you know, potentially don't have quite so much monetary value, or perhaps not such a ready market to sell those works into. So the circumstances surrounding deaccessioning are just not necessarily congruent for all different kinds of museums.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what makes the Berkshire Museum case kind of interesting, too, because they're clearly violating the guidelines in the fact that they're selling work for financial reasons. But interestingly, part of their argument is that they're just pivoting away from being an art museum. Like, that's just not really what they're going to be doing in the future.
1: That's also right. And I think it plays into a bigger picture around these guidelines in general. I think typically we see these kinds of deaccessioning controversies arise most frequently in circumstances where the museums are in a unique or a kind of unusual circumstance in relation to their art collections. So in the past, for example, deaccessioning issues have often come up in the context of universities that have art museums embedded within the university itself. And then the question becomes, to what extent do the professional organizations expect the universities, which are ultimately the owners of the museums, to abide by these guidelines that are designed for institutions other than universities. So that came up in the case, for example, the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis or in relation to the collection at at Fisk University.
2: Right. And I also wondered, looking back at the history of deaccessioning cases, I could be wrong, but it seems like all of them are from smaller regional museums. I haven't seen any big cases from the Met or MoMA, for example. Except maybe the DIA. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think, I think that's true. And I think that's a really interesting observation for two different reasons, right? First off, It's true because those big national museums tend to also have very large endowments, right? And so they don't typically find themselves in a circumstance where they feel an institutional obligation to look for a way to cover budget shortfalls, essentially. But in addition, it also goes, I think, to a deeper question, which is, you know, To what extent are deaccessioning norms addressing real problems in museum governance, and what are they really for in the first place? Because, you know, it doesn't seem that large museums have an incentive to violate any of the expectations of the norms, even though in theory there is no legal prohibition on them doing so. So then the question becomes, to what extent are these rules really necessary and and doing any meaningful work?
0: Right. And I think, you know, we've kind of alluded to this, but the term industry guidelines may sound a little, I don't know, fluffy. Non binding, I would say. Non-binding. Maybe not fluffy. Not fluffy. Mon- non binding. They sound very serious. But, but <laughs> they actually have some teeth in terms of how. Uh, museums can be punished, even though it's not super common, for violating these.
2: Right. They're not, like like Brian said, they're not laws, but there are consequences. Right.
1: That's right. They're not laws at all. They're guidelines established by private professional organizations. And so they have teeth, as it were. They have some force to the extent that the professional organizations have the wherewithal to impose sanctions on institutions or individuals that don't abide by those guidelines. And I think that's one of the reasons that we see conflicts over them come up more frequently in the context of sort of non-traditional museums or museums that are changing their purposes. Because in those circumstances, the institutions in question are not as susceptible to the influence of the professional organizations, as it were, and so the ability of those organizations to enforce the norms is, or the rules, is is reduced.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's worth pointing out that the AAM and the AAMD have a ton of guidelines on a ton of different subjects, almost everything you can think of when it comes to, to governing a museum, but deaccessioning is special in the way in which it is kind of a binary issue, That's part of why it flares, I think, to the the headlines when this happens. You either if you're selling work for financial reasons, you are breaking the rules, period.
1: That that's right. I mean, I I, I would actually kind of maybe take a look at it from the other side and ask why is it binary in the first place? Um, And I would suggest that perhaps the deaccessioning rules are binary because of the needs of the professional organization in relation to enforcement right so if they weren't binary if it was a gray area it would be a lot harder for the professional organizations to enforce them the sort of binary nature i think makes it easier for them to put down a stake or draw a line in the sand
0: well before we kind of give our own personal you know thumbs up thumbs down to these guidelines what's the rationale for why they should exist What would a museum industry group say?
1: Typically, the AAM and the AAMD say that the restrictions on deaccessioning are are justified in order to essentially prevent museums from raiding the piggy bank, as it were, Mm -hmm. in, in order to fund their ongoing operations, in order to ensure that The incentives of the directors of the museums are aligned with institutional purposes. And then the additional reason, sometimes given, is that donors to museums expect that the museums will hang on to the works that they donate. And as a consequence, uh, the knowledge or the expectation that museums may accession might discourage donors from making future contributions the argument is that museums especially art museums hold the works in their collections in what's referred to as the quote unquote public trust right in the sense that they hold the artworks on behalf of the public and therefore it's an ethical violation for them to sell the artworks
2: right because if they're sold they might end up in a private collection and then the public would never see them again.
1: That's sort of the idea is that if they're sold to private individuals, then they would no longer be accessible to the public and that museums uh, have an institutional obligation to hold those works in their collection in order to ensure that the the patrimony of the public is preserved.
2: Right. And I've also seen, at least in the articles or surrounding the Berkshire museum, some other arguments that say if donors Not donors who are giving works, but donors who are giving money to museums knew that a museum could simply sell a work from its collection to make more money that might de-incentivize giving to museums. Well,
0: I think it's sort of interesting because if you look at donations today, like major monetary donations from individuals are usually tied to, they either come in the form of artworks, which are always given a dollar sign when Mm -hmm. they're donated, uh, even if it's just for tax purposes, or they come with with someone saying, I want my name on this building. You don't really usually see donors stepping in to fill a budget shortfall. That's not usually,
2: or that's that's less sexy than jumping in and building a new wing.
0: Yes,
1: I mean I would say one exception to that, one big exception to that, would be the circumstance surrounding the the DIA, uh, in which precisely that actually did happen a combination of institutional and private donors coming together to donate in order to preserve the museum but but i would suggest also that the dia situation is kind of sui generis and and i think you're right it's probably not generalizable to the circumstances uh confronting other museums
0: yeah i mean we've talked about this issue a little bit in the past and one thing that i think, Brian, that you said, which was interesting, which which was to kind of distinguish between hard and fast rules and a norm. Because I think that in this conversation around deaccessioning, some people think that anything other than the way things are now, anything other than the status quo means museums putting up work for auction all the time, constantly, whenever they want to, everything changes. It's Armageddon in the art market. I think there's there's a more sensible middle ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess my concern is I just don't find that prediction terribly compelling or or plausible, right? I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of kind of critics of what are referred to as deaccessioning norms, but I think are better for… Described as deaccessioning rules, they're not norms at all. There, it's a hard and fast. Do it my way or the highway, right? So, I think w- one of the things that critics of deaccessioning rules tend to say is that look, none of these arguments for why deaccessioning for the purpose of financial solvency is unacceptable, but deaccessioning for the purpose of buying new works is acceptable, make any sense, right? I mean, if we assume that that, art, for example, art museums hold artworks in the public trust, then why can they sell those works for one purpose but not for another, right? If a museum sells an artwork for the purpose of buying another artwork, well, the artwork it held in the first place is still removed from the public trust in exactly the same way as it would have been otherwise. It's kind of an incoherent argument. Either a work is in the public trust or it isn't in the public trust, and you can't have it both ways depending on the particular particular circumstances. And and I think think the concern that museums are somehow going to start selling works out of the collection willy-nilly, again, I just don't find it convincing, right? I mean, I don't think there's any evidence that well-managed museums are going to do something like that. Now, if the concern is museum management, I'm totally sympathetic to that, but I don't think the accessioning rules or norms are the way to go about policing museum management.
0: So, yeah, what I think you're kind of hinting on is – Something brought up by some people in this debate, which is, you know, these deaccessioning norms uh, exist to basically say, museums, you have to govern yourself well because there's you cannot rely on your collection to bail you out.
2: A, a while ago, I published a piece about museums that have closed down, which is not a super common occurrence, but a lot of times it happens because they've gone bankrupt, which is one reason that a lot of museums do deaccession works because they're in a bad financial situation and so they need money. And I talked to the former director of the Corcoran Gallery, which shut down in D.C., and she was saying, you know, a lot of the problem with the Corcoran Gallery was that Decades and decades ago, before she started as director, before anyone who worked at the museum when it closed down was working there, they decided that they weren't gonna start collecting contemporary and modern art in any you know significant way. And so in some ways, the Corcoran Gallery overlapped a lot with the National Gallery of Art's purview. And so people went to the National Gallery of Art instead of the Corcoran because it was just more famous and it had more famous works. And she's like, there is no big museum in DC that's really focusing on contemporary art in a significant way, and if we'd filled that void then maybe we still would have been around. But, I mean, that's not an example of museums mismanaging themselves. You know, it wasn't a short-term thing. It was a it was a generational shift that they didn't make the right bet.
1: I think that works into the, to the bigger picture here, right? Because I, I just don't think that hard and fast deaccessioning rules prohibiting the sale of works for financial purposes is really an effective way of addressing museum mismanagement issues. I certainly agree that, Museum directors have an obligation to the institution to manage it effectively and responsibly. In fact, they have a literal legal obligation to do that. But the accessioning norms simply say that, well, if they make a mistake or make many mistakes and essentially run the institution into the ground, well, then we're going to punish the institution for it. I mean, what? that just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, replace the directors with more appropriate directors, but why destroy the institution? I mean, I think the Corcoran is a fantastic example of that. Essentially what the quote-unquote deaccessioning police said, that it was, you know, ethically and normatively socially preferable for the Corcoran Gallery to close down, rather than say sell one painting in order to cover its its budget shortfall, I just think that's nuts.
0: Yeah, so I guess for anyone thinking about changing these rules, it's it's always an interesting debate because I feel like the argument uh, for the current rules is one made heavily in the name of the public, like you're keeping the works in public trust. So the debate around these issues kind of almost is about quasi convincing the public when ultimately it's not like there's going to be a vote on these, like a referendum on these rules. It's really is these industry organizations. How would you change their guidelines? Is there anything that would happen? And even if, you know, you, it's not like this is what we do next. What would kind of an ideal look like to you?
1: Right. I mean, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure that there is a direct and effective way to change the guidelines that the industry organizations have actually adopted. And I think the the association's own history kind of suggests that that's the case, right? The fact that the AAM had decades of debate over what the rules should look like, the fact that the AAMD, you know, adopted these guidelines 50 years ago, right, and has stuck to them ever since, suggests that internal changes are probably unlikely. But the thing is, the only way that the AAM and the AAMD are able to enforce the rules that they've adopted is rhetorically, right? So they go to the public, and they say, uh, you know, the sky is falling, woe is us, you know, how could this institution contemplate the sale of artworks For the purpose of covering a financial shortfall. It's just so unethical. It's just so terrible. It's just the worst thing ever. They try to get people thinking that, oh, what this institution is doing is really bad. But I think if the public narrative changes and people say, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, You know, what they're doing is actually the best option they have under the circumstances. Well, the fire really goes out of the AAM and the AAMD's argument. And and actually, I think in practice, it's kind of what we see happening, right? I mean, you know, they they do the chicken little thing when the institutions suggest that they're going to make the sale, but if it actually goes through, they basically pretend like it never happened, right? I mean, look, I don't want to sound like I'm saying, you know, museums should be selling works willy-nilly. I I, I don't, right? I I mean, I think we can rely or we need to rely on museum directors to make appropriate decisions for the institution. If they're failing to do that, we should be policing that on an institutional level and providing the resources and the incentives for museum directors to adhere more closely to their duty of care and duty of loyalty to the institution. I just don't think deaccessioning rules, right, these hard and fast rules prohibiting museums from selling works for financial reasons are, are an appropriate way to accomplish that goal.
0: Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much to Brian and Abby for joining us. Please remember to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Our producer this week, maybe you heard her on the pod, editorial associate Abigail Kane. theme music by Broke for Free.